Welcome to episode number 75 of Gunfighter Cast. I'm Daniel Shaw. Before we start this episode with John Hottaway, I want to remind you that Gunfighter Cast has been nominated by the 2012 People's Choice Podcast Awards for Best in Education. Uh, we need your votes to win that award, so go to podcastawards.com and vote for Gunfighter Cast. You can do this once a day from now until November 15th. Once you send that vote, go ahead and check your email because it's going to validate that they've had some issues with people offering to vote for shows for money. So uh, they're sending validation requests to emails to keep the bots away. So go vote, then check your email. Do it every day. Thanks. Here's John. Hello, welcome to Gunfighter Cast, episode number 75. John has been fired again and he has been replaced by John Hottaway. Hey, John. Hey, Daniel. How are you today, man? I'm doing good, John. How are you? I'm doing well, brother. Hey, John didn't really get fired. The president came to town, and, you know, he's that kind of guy. You know, when the president comes to town, he gets called away. John came on in short notice, and I really appreciate that. And I know a lot of the listeners really like John Hottaway, and uh, I like John Hottaway. You know, the only question I've got is, why is it taking you so long to have me on as a guest? Well, John alluded to wanting to be on Gunfighter Cast when we were at MAG-40, over a year ago and just to mess with john i had to make him wait a long time and i teased him a couple times and uh that was just my way of, of kind of getting getting at john dude you're killing me you're killing me it just happened that way well i guess i gotta give some backstory man and i, I think i may have even mention this to you at mac 40 hearing you on the other podcast before we got there to utah i was like this guy is so like self-serving and it just I can't stand him. He just annoys the crap out of me. I cannot stand this John Holloway guy. Why is he on every podcast? He's so annoying. And like half of his stuff isn't even funny. It's just why is everybody keep having him on? Who is this guy? And I didn't want to like you. I really didn't. Like I was like, I don't even want to like this guy. Five minutes after meeting him, you just can't help it. You just, you got <laughs> you got to like John. Oh, you know, and I'll tell you something. Can I give you my perspective, Daniel? Absolutely. You know, I listened to your shows, your early ones, you know, and, and I was like, uh, wow, you know, is he drunk? And then I asked you that, and you're like, yeah, I was. And I'm like, okay, so that explains a lot. We're good to go, man. Yeah, that, that me and Justin, we used to hang out with a wild turkey doing a gunfighter cast. That's the way it started. Yeah. We were so nervous in front of a microphone. You had to do something to take the edge off. That's what the actors do, right? Yeah, the talent. exactly. Something to knock the edge off, man. Yep. So that's funny. No, but hey, I'm glad to be on, you know, and and seriously, uh, you know, it was great hanging out uh, when we were in Utah together at MAG 40. You know, it was a good experience and uh, it was good to get to know you there. And, and, uh, you know, I really have wanted to be on your show and talk about some things because I thought, you know, hey, uh, you know, this guy and, and, you know, just telling you, telling it like it is. I thought, you know, this guy on here, he's kind of smug, you know, he's talking all his stuff and, you know, and then. Hey, when we got together, you know, I was like, hey, that's just how he is. You know, he's he's not a bad guy. He's just uh he, he you know, he's his stuff's buttoned up and he knows what he what he thinks. And so, um, you know, I've wanted to be on and talk some stuff with you that I thought was kind of interesting, you know, that you uh you made some comments and I I'll jump into it here. You know, you said something really interesting to me that I wanted to uh wanted to explore if we can, you know, is No, I was going to bring that up cuz I remember we had some good conversations that were almost like we were, we were kind of arguing, yeah. and that's what – you're like, wow, somebody's arguing with me. This is awesome. Yeah. And I don't remember what those things were, so I was hoping you did. Well, you know, one of the things we were talking about, Daniel, was we were talking about optics um, on, an, on an M4 carbine, 
or, or let's just say, you know, any kind of AR-15 type platform, okay? And, you know, you were talking about that you guys had a great technique to run the, uh, the, the Trijicon. And I was making the point that, you know, I like to shoot both eyes open, uh, up close and personal, either with a red dot or my preferred scope that has a variable magnification is a loophole uh, CQT. And what I'm doing is, is I've got a sweep lever on it, and I go from no magnification all the way up. You know, generally to me, magnification is like an on or off switch. You know, you either want all you can get or you want none at all. And you said, no, man, there's a technique um, to run the, uh, the ACOG on the M4 with both eyes open. And I was like, okay, I got to hear this because I don't believe it. So that was kind of our first throwdown. And you said, we'll talk about it, but we kind of saved it. So what, what's the technique, dude? How's that better, different? You know, are you, are you making up for this is what the government gives us or do you believe in it? Well, I've said many times on Gunfire Cast, my preferred optic is, is like you. I like the red dot. And I think if we need magnification, I like the, the bevel switch of like the LCAN provides and that ZT provides that you're talking about. I'm not very familiar with that optic. I think that's the one I see a lot of people using in uh, three gun matches, right? Yeah, yeah. Really popular for that. And uh, that kind of stuff is awesome, having the, the flip the switch and you're going from zero to four or one to whatever. Yeah. Uh, the LCAN Spectre DR does a similar thing, and I met that when some SEALs had it over when I was in Chesapeake, and they just swore by that thing. Uh, to the point where I guarantee you someone had an Elcan DR, Spectre DR, on their rifle when they shot Ben Laden. Mm-hmm. I would, I would almost, I'd put money on that because these guys, were the dev group, SEAL Team 6, uh, we're all about that thing. But, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the EOTech. I just, having just close range optic, I like that big window. That's the, the reticle always stays center line of bore. No matter how you look at it, there's no scope shadow to deal with. None of that optical center, none of that crap. Just red stuff on bad stuff, pull the trigger, and that's it. But... Since we did put all of our eggs in one basket in the Marine Corps, and we have the ACOG, which we call the RCO, the Rifle Combat Optic, you know, we, we didn't invent this this technique. Actually, uh, Trigicon did, and it's called the bend and aiming concept, you know, the founder, named after him, uh, where you, we shoot with both eyes open. And there's a video on uh, the Trigicon site, you can look around for it, and I'll try to find a link for it and throw it in the notes here, where it has some, they're shooting deer, and a deer is running across a, a field, and it kind of demonstrates how when you have both eyes open, uh, you can see that deer with your regular unaided eye. And then when that deer passes in front of your optic, your brain automatically switches to that enhanced image without even thinking about it in just a fraction of a split second. Uh, and that does happen. You can see that when you're looking at long range, uh, whenever you have both eyes on a target and you've actually practiced presenting your, your weapon uh, the right way. You already have it in your shoulder in such a way that whenever you bring it up, you don't have to bring your head down, your shoulders up or anything. You just bring that M4 up or whatever weapon you're using uh, and your sights come before your eyes. Uh, both eyes are looking at your threat. The sight comes before your eyes. Your brain, without even thinking about it, just switches to that magnified enhanced image. Now, this works great at a little bit of distance. It doesn't work so good when you're talking about like 25 and in, 25 meters and in, because that enhanced image. Now you might see it. You don't really need to have that crystal clear enhanced image. Okay. Well, let me let me toss something out here for you. I want to ask a quick question. Okay. You're saying that this technique works, and I'm going to ask you this question: How much training is required before you feel like you've mastered the technique that you've just described? That technique is best for shooting at, at moving targets, uh, using at, at a little bit of distance, or you know, standing still targets at a distance where you do want to have you know a reasonable 
sight picture. You know, we talk about acceptable sight picture or how much sight picture is necessary to put accurate hits on your threat, you know, given the distance and time. Not much. You really don't need much training at all to do, to do that part. What, uh, what we were probably really getting into was close range, 25 meters and in, was what we call uh, shooting on a flash of red. The way we teach people to do this, I could, if you've never done it before and you were a novice shooter with an AR-15 and you had an RCO on your rifle, and I challenge the listeners to do this and send emails and Facebook posts or whatever and tell me what you got from this at the range, stand at 15-yard line, put duct tape over the front of your RCO or your ACOG, and both eyes open, stare center, high chest area where you want bullets to impact your target, present your weapon to the target. As soon as you see a flash of red, hit them with a hammer pair. And I guarantee you, you're going to be within a 10-inch circle on the chest. Well, the, the reason I'm asking the this... first time you do it. I've got a friend of mine, and he runs a... Uh, Oh, the SIG 5.56 civilian version. Um, and he's got an ACOG on it. And, you know, we're always struggling with the up-close and personal stuff. And this is a technique that I want to try, and I want to see how it works with him. I'm going to try this. He's got a body double, and they're the same skills level, same everything. Mm-hmm. And one of them is running the EOTech or an Aimpoint or one of these. they got 20,000, you know, nice yeah. red dots out there these days that are really, really good optics. And they're running one of these, you know, low-profile red dots or EOTech or something, and he's running that ACOG using this technique. His hits are going to be effective. They're going to be incapacitating hits or, you know, good parts of the body that we want to hit to kill bad guys. But the guy running those EOTech or the other the red dots, I, I, he's going to smoke them. I, I, I really I think so. Okay. If they're the same skill level, you're going to be better up close with one of those zero magnification optics than you are with that four power. Okay, let me let me let's just jump around here a little bit. I want to throw something out here. You know, you've mentioned the EOTech, uh you mentioned the aim point. Let's just talk about um a couple of preferences I've got. I want to bounce them off of you and see what your thoughts are, okay? If I'm familiar with them, I'll give them. No problem. Okay. I originally was the poster child for EOTech. I mean, I was just like, "Oh my gosh, you know these things are perfect. They're great." Um you know, run them. What I found was, is that when you get to what I call, you know, your first level of shooting is what I just call metal over meat. You know, you get metal over meat and you let it have it. And then, you know, that, that next level, which we were just talking about, you know, 15, 20 yard shooting, boy, they were perfect. And then out to about a hundred yards, I found them tolerable. And after a hundred yards, I was like, Oh God, this is worthless. Now, I went, was that with the magnifier or without? Without the magnifier. Yeah, you're not. That, that's where it, it by itself without the magnifier, it's it's a close range optic. Yeah, it, it really and is. then I went to the aim point, and I don't remember the model I've got, but I've got the one that's got like 12 clicks. You know, the first ones are for NVG, and then the next clicks are visible. Okay? Yep. And I'm running that on a, um, oh, uh, uh, the Smith and Wesson viking tactics model you know that has the surefire uh muzzle brake suppressor and the viking tactics forum stuff and the jp trigger and whatnot in it and i'm running that but i've got the smaller moa dot in it and i'm like man i can run this thing out to 200 yards without any trouble without any magnification without anything you know i'm good to 200 yards with this tart you know with this sight and so i'm like you know this to me is my is a is a great you know what I call just no trinkets and trash running deal. You know I like my rifles clean, an optic and a white light and a sling. You know those are the only things I put on my gun. 
And so I'm like, hey, this is this is pretty good. So I think that's a superior red dot optic because it's zero to 200 meters without any trinkets or trash. What's your thoughts on that, Daniel? Yeah, I, I like the aim points, and I don't know which model you're you're talking about exactly. Uh, is this the micro dot? No, it's the it's the tube, and then it's got six positions on it. The first three are for NVG. No, that's the one I'm using. That's the one I'm rolling with, and I'm like. That's good for me for zero to 200 meters without any screwing with it, you know? Simple. Yeah, you can't beat that. But I like that over an EOTech. That's what I'm saying. What do you think? My experience with Aimpoint and EOTech, I, I like the EOTech. Okay. Just the close range ability. But, uh, but not just the EOTech by itself, but the EOTech with the magnifier. I think the EOTech with the magnifier beats the Aimpoint with the magnifier. Now that, I don't know. That one I'd have to go, eh. I'm, but that's why, I, but that's why I do say like, uh, you know, like I said earlier, that the EOTech it's really it's a close range optic, and I, you got the ones with a bullet drop compensator, and I think a bullet drop compensator is, is a great thing. Uh, that's one thing that the RCO has going for it, or the ACOG. I'm so mm-hmm. brainwashed by the Marine Corps, I always keep calling it that. That's one thing it really has going for it, and your ability to estimate range quickly with it, uh, and you know just being able to see which reticle you need to use to put the bullet on the bad guy. Uh, the EOTech, uh, I think it's the 556 that has the, the bullet drop compensator in it. You know, those dots are too tiny. You can't even hardly see them without the magnifier behind it. Yep. But then you roll that thing into place, and now you've got a good solid optic up close, and then a quick little transition, and, you know, you've got that long range. And uh, does Aimpoint have anything with the, with the BDC? No. I don't. Well, let me rephrase this. <clears throat> I don't think they do, but we'd have to ask Larry Vickers to know for sure. I don't know, Larry. That was a joke. Larry's big on aim point. Larry's everything aim point. If you ever, <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, Larry is like, you know, Larry's the optic guy, you know, he, but his red dot of choice is aim point. He's, he, you know, he's pretty sure that when Moses came down from, you know, the mountain with the 10 commandments, he brought down an aim point with him. Uh, I'm not knocking either one. I think if you get an aim point and EOTech sitting next to each other, yep. either one you pick up. You're going to have good optics. Oh, yeah. You know, I think we're talking about the distance of, you know, is this hair wider than that one? They're both great optics. Exactly, yeah. I, you know, I'm more saying preference for me. I'm not saying one won't get the job done and one will. Uh, you know, this is not the uh, uh, this is not the conversation about 1911 versus polymer pistol versus Beretta. Ver- you know, it's not – we're not having a religious conversation, just a preferential right. conversation, you know? Yeah, I, I like them both. Okay, so that was a good good technique, and I'm going to try that. I'm going to give it some thought, and I'll try to give you some feedback uh, and let you know what, how it works because I've got a student that I definitely need to make that work for. Yeah, don't don't expect keyhole shots, but expect good. Uh, I hate the, the term combat efficiency or combat effective, but uh, I think it applies here. You know, I, Daniel, I'm going to share something with you. I think there is, you know, again, I'm not going to go into combat semantics of words. But I would just want to make something really clear here, and, and you've probably heard me say this before, and anybody who's ever heard me on another podcast, you know, first of all, handguns are a defensive weapon, and I do not believe that there's what's called, quote-unquote, combat accuracy with a handgun. Um, you know, they're very inefficient even when you get hits in the right place, and then so I'm not with that. But a rifle, on the other hand, tends to be a fairly decent stopping machine, even in five five six. So I'm like, there is combat accuracy, if you want to use that word, that says, you know, there's a little more forgiveness in where I hit with a rifle than a handgun. 
to do the job. Oh, yeah. I think I said combat effectiveness. Like, we want to stop the threat, and you can put multiple shots on a target without actually even having it visible in your optic at close range just by both eyes open, open uh, and a flash of red that will put multiple shots in the chest and uh, give somebody a bad day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely on that. But if you're having them shooting five-inch steel plates at 25 and 15 yards, they're going to miss some. I'm looking for a good hit, you know, on an IDPA or an IPSC target that would probably stop the threat in the upper chest region. That's what I at, want. At what range? Probably 15 yards That's what I'm yeah, looking you, for. You should get that consistently, even okay. with a, you know, a not-so-experienced shooter. Yeah. That's what I want that technique to work with because, like I said, I've got somebody who's bought into a rifle and an optic combination, and I just didn't know how to train up close. Now, when you get back... Tell them to buy a new optic. Yeah, I tried that, and he told me how expensive Because I, I, I personally wouldn't own an ACOG uh, myself. I, there's just so many other better options out there, in my opinion. I think it's a great optic, but there are betters. Well... Betters? betters. Better ones, yeah. <laughs> let's go... That's not a real word, but let's go with a real word. That's a real word now. I know. You said it, right? Sure. I'm, you said it too. I did. But, I, you know, he brought it to class. So he brought what he brought, you know, and that's that's what you got to work with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm with you on that. So, uh, man, I appreciate that was a good uh, That was a good breakdown on optics. Now, let's, uh, let's jump around and let our uh, ADD kick in. You, and, it's your show, John. Take it away. You are so Where are we right. going? It is my world, and I'm glad you're a part of it, Daniel. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Hey, um, you know, one of the things, and, you know, while we were wrapping out a little bit before we started recording. You know, I had some guys out to the range, and uh, we had Carbine Sunday out at the range. And, um, you know, we were all kind of talking, and, and one of the common themes was, is, you know, and I hate to say it, but we were all like, you know, I kind of want to get my gear squared away before the election. And... Um, we were all talking. There's a little concern out here that, uh, and, and I don't, I don't think it's unjustified. You know, if you read the Drudge Report, uh, read a lot of these things. You know, a lot of people are saying that if their candidate um, is not elected, there will be civil unrest. And you know, I think that one of the things you got to look at is, is okay. Uh, and, and I'm not even going to go into which candidate, which group of people. I mean, I think let's just make this generic. But there's going to be some people, either way, how this election goes is going to be real unhappy. And is there an opportunity for this thin veneer of politeness that we have in this society to peel away? And I think the answer to that question is yes. I think there is some opportunity for that. And, um, you know, I think if we don't have our stuff squared away, it can be a hard day for us. I think if we've got our stuff squared away, I think that this thing will pass probably a lot easier than the... uh, than uh, that storm named Sandy did on the East Coast. You know, I mean, I think it'll it'll go away quicker than that mess will be cleaned up. But, um, you know, a couple of things I'm thinking, Daniel. Number one is, you know, I think you've got to do a good uh, look at your assessment of your situation. You know, how likely is there to be civil unrest in the area that I'm in? That's question A. Question B is, is, you know, a lot of people travel. And so, you know, you may be good and safe at home, but, you know, and Daniel, I, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember where you were at when the O.J. Simpson uh, jury verdict came out? You know, No, I don't. Okay. I was probably out climbing a tree or something. Probably. Beating my friends up with sticks. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Are you trying to say I'm old? 
uh, saying I'm young. I gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Well, you know, there's lots of moments where there were a lot of people that if he was found guilty were afraid that it was going to riot. And, you know, so I happened to be in California on business during that trial. And, you know, we were like, man, what are we going to do? You know, if there's a riot, you need to have a plan. So if you're traveling, you know, you need to examine where you're traveling and how likely based on the election results and the things that go on. Now, one thing I want to just stress is a lot of people, let's give a quick civics lesson here. You know, we're going to have an election on Tuesday. And most people believe that when the news media calls the election, it's in fact over with. But, you know, we know from recent times in Florida with recounts and court decisions that this thing could take 20, 30 days just to decide the popular vote. Well, here's the kicker. Um, We're going to have a popular vote that in reality means almost next to nothing because what's going to happen is that approximately like December 15th in the state house of every state, we're going to have an electoral college that's going to come together and vote. They're going to vote. They're going to certify that vote. Then they're going to send it to the president of the Senate, which is Uncle Joe Biden. Uh And they're going to say, this is who we elect. Now, we have an indirect democracy. So then those votes will be counted in a joint session in front of everything, and at least one senator and one representative must raise an objection to it for it to be legal. And then that will be certified with the Electoral College, and we'll have a president. Now, what I'm saying here is, you know, if people don't like the way the vote goes, if they don't like the way the Electoral College decision goes, if they don't like the way that there's a recount going, really, we have the potential from Tuesday through you know, January, for there to be some potential civil unrest based on what that day's news stories roll and how those counts go. Well, I think we also need to look at a little bit more broad than that. I know in North Carolina, where I'm from, there's a lot of stuff going on with unions, a lot of stuff going on with grassroots movements and replacing the entire house almost after uh, their last two years of screwing everything up. And uh, our governor that's not even running anymore because she knows she doesn't have a chance there's a lot of people that are really, really upset about a lot of things in the local. And I don't even know much about because I'm not even there. I just hear like things here and there and read stuff online every once in a while. And that's just the state of North Carolina. I know there's a lot of issues like that in your local area that may not even just be driven from, you know, the presidential election, but from other local elections and, you know, things that so-and-so plans to do. And uh, it's, it's a lot bigger, I think. Well, and what I'm getting at is, is I think this is just the presidential election, I think, has the potential to be a match that starts the fire. And, you know, like you said, there's kind of that emotional political brush fire that's waiting there that's a tinderbox looking for something to set it off. And you've, you know, you've talked about North Carolina. I mean, my gosh, look what happened in Wisconsin, you know, with their recent recall election and that whole union situation, the public unions. You know, look at Chicago. You know, look at there's lots of places that that there's this opportunity for uh, you know this this brush fire of frustrations by different groups. So, you know, in in saying that, I think the first thing is is you got to be situationally aware and aware of your circumstances where you're going. So, if you plan on traveling between now and you know January, I think you need to be aware of what's happening and you know what those tensions are. The second thing is I think you need to have a plan to either get out of or get to, you know, whether it's to leave where you're at or get to where you need to be. And that means a couple of things to me. One, you know, 
don't be riding on an empty tank of gas. You know, make sure that you start saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to fill up at half a tank rather than empty. Uh, number two, you know, make sure that you've got, and, and I think any civil unrest we have will be just that civil. And I think that, so if you've got a plan, let's just say, you know, most of the time, if you give a, a good rioting a few days to go down, well, they burn down most of the stuff they want to burn down and things, you know, kind of go out if you've got uh, a few days to, you know, it's amazing how you call in people with rifles and everyone seems to settle down. But, um, you know, you give it a few days. So that means, hey, I've got to expect that I can't go to the grocery store for a few days, that I can't, uh, you know, can't run to Walmart. So, you know, you need a few days of food and water, a few days of, you know, supplies laid in. Uh, I don't think we're going to see like major interruptions of the power grid and the communications network. But I think, so you got to say, I need to kind of adopt John Farnham's method of personal security, which is, you know, don't go dumb places, do dumb things with dumb people. So, you know, I need to stay out of potential areas where there's going to be rioting or civil unrest, where they're going to be burning things down. You know, I've got no business there, nothing important to me, or the things that I have that are important, I've already left with. And so that means few days food and water, few days of your prescriptions. You know, you don't want to have to run to the pharmacy uh, to go get a prescription filled. So make sure, you know, you get your prescriptions filled before you're down to the last pill in your bottle, you know. Um, so those are just some forward-thinking things that I think we've got to be prepared for uh, over the next, really, 90 days and looking at that pretty realistically. You're absolutely right. And I, I'm kind of out of touch over here. I see what's on the news like a day and a half late and – that's usually a weird time, so I don't even get to watch it because uh, the time zone differences and everything, and the way our TV works. But it seems like a Hurricane Sandy. The, the thing that the people that are impacted the most uh, is the people that I think have the worst, most idiotic lifestyle ever. The kind of people who stop by the market while they're walking home from work, or they stop by the market and or get takeout all the time, and they don't have a large supply of food. They don't cook for themselves on a regular basis. Now, I got no issue with eating out or takeout or uh, stopping by and grabbing something special, but you gotta have some food storage. You just you just have to. And these people are they're they're saying I don't have any water, and if it wasn't for these mercy chefs, we'd be starving. Like it, it's only been two days, people. You, really, you don't have two days worth of food, beans, and and you know canned goods that you can't live off of. I just can't imagine living that way. I mean, we get typhoons here all the time, which is the same thing as a hurricane, uh, tsunami warnings. You know, we could be flooded in, tonight, in the morning when I wake up, and I can't even leave my house for, for days. You know, so uh, it's just you got to change your lifestyle, and it's not something hard to do. Just every time you go to the grocery store, get what you need, but just get a little bit of extra of the non-perishables and water. You know, Daniel, I've got a couple of things. I tell people this, you know. Um, have you seen those, you know, and I don't know what you call it here, but uh, we've got like Culligan water, you know, and they bring these five gallon, um, jugs of water and you, mm -hmm. know, you set them on a water cooler. Okay. Well, I just ordered a couple of extra ones of those and I keep them in the garage, you know, and there's five gallons of water right there. And you know that, so that's an easy way to keep five gallons of drinking water around the house. I don't have to be prepared to transport it anywhere. You know, I'm not, I'm not planning on bugging out with a five gallon jug of water on my shoulder. But the thing is, is it's not hard to do. You put it in the garage. It's sealed up. It's going to be fine. Um, you know, you you look at some of the other things where you go, hey, that might not be what I want to eat every day, but 
dang it, you know, a can of chili might be really nice and make a decent meal if everybody's really hungry, you know? Um, uh, if you're like us, you've been through some hard times. There's been some times where we're like, you know, we're poor and the wife goes in there and she grabs some veg cans of this, cans of that, cans of that. Next thing you know, you got a big can of thing of soup on the stove and it tastes awesome. Exactly. Like, you, you can do it, man. And 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 that's the other thing, you know, I read about, let's just talk about Sandy a little bit. And I'm and I'm not mocking anyone, but I just want to share a couple of things where I go, you know, uh I call it my uh my P plan, you know, it's prior planning prevents piss poor performance. Yep. And here's the deal. I look at these guys and you know, I read the story. Uh okay, the National Guard was bringing in gasoline and they were giving 10 gallons of gasoline to everyone free. Well, then all of a sudden, they said emergency service vehicles gets preference on this gasoline, and the civilians are going to have to wait, and they were having a riot. They called in, you know, people with guns and shotguns and rifles and stuff to calm everybody down, and I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. You know, the gas tank on my truck holds 23 gallons. You know, that's like a 400-mile trip I can make, and I'm thinking, why didn't I just fill up with gas before the hurricane hit? You know, why wasn't I keeping my tank over half full so I don't need gas today? So I don't have And to it was like the right next now. day they were they were they were out and about. It was like the very next day they were all needing gas. Yeah. You know, my second question is, you know, I've got uh look, you know, I live in a fairly moderate climate here. But I can tell you that I have two generators in my garage, you know, one big one and one really small, you know, quiet one that I take to the range to use for events and stuff. And I was like, okay, I've got four or five gas cans. You know, I've got on my list of things to do today is I've got to fill up my gas cans for the winter because we might have an ice storm and be without power, you know, three days, a week, something like that. Well, gee, I've got natural gas so I can run the furnaces if I have electricity to run them, you know. Well, if that fails, you know, I've got some wood on a wood rack that I can burn in our fireplace you know, it may not be perfect, but it'll keep the house warm, you know, to keep the pipes from freezing. So it's like, okay, I've got three sources here that don't require a lot of work, so I've got a little redundancy built in. Well, that's not, I'm not, Daniel, I don't even own a tinfoil hat, a thigh rig, or a pair of Ray-Bans. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not crazy, but I'm just like, well, it's probable, so let's address the probable things that we could be looking at you know i'm not sure i'm prepared for a giant sunstorm emp pulse collapse of the economy you know life as we know it ceases but what could probably happen is we could probably get an ice storm we could probably have civil unrest gee maybe i need to keep a tank of gas maybe i need to keep some gas for my generators maybe i need to keep some firewood maybe we need a few maybe we need to throw a case of chili in the pantry you know those things don't require a lot of money, a lot of advanced prep, and they'll take care of themselves in the long run. And my family's going to be really snug, and, and we'll make it through. Now, I still have ammunition and rifles, but I think if I have an ice storm, I'm probably not going to go over with my rifle and take my neighbor's food, you know? And that's the reality that I see a lot of people missing. is like, I've got all this ammunition stocked up, and I've got this rifle, and I've got 100 magazines loaded. And you go, yeah, you got nothing to eat here, dude, except, you know, you got some crackers and half a case of beer, you know? What are you going to do? Yeah, it's not going to work out. Hey, there was a couple things that uh, you brought up there. One, you know, you, you don't, for me, if I was back in the States, uh, depending on what my situation was, the way I anticipate it being and the way it's always been, I don't have a whole lot of need for a generator, especially if I have some kind of wood or some kind of wood-burning uh, ability in my house to, to heat the place and it's in the wintertime. 
But what really appalled me when I, I see elderly folks dying because they're uh, dependent on oxygen or other things that require electricity. And when the electricity went out, they died. And this is in the year 2012. The electricity went out and they died. That's That just shouldn't happen. I mean, I think you were talking about, you know, you're not crazy with a tinfoil hat. I think there's like preparedness people like myself and then some people think oh when you buy a generator you're really crazy preparedness you just want to be one of those survivalist extremists no i if i don't have a need for to spend the money on a generator then i don't need to spend it but if if i have an elderly person in my family that is dependent on electricity for their survival you better believe that i'm going to sell whatever i have to to get them a generator and keep that thing filled and have fuel stock for them well you know daniel this is going to go back to something that i get uh, maybe it's a running joke, okay? You know, the running joke about John Hottaway is, is he says, get some training and get a 1911, okay? Well, you know, what I have found is that it's a whole lot easier to get people to buy a gun than it is to get them to get training with a gun. And in the situation that you just lined out here, you know, it's a whole lot easier to get people to plan for the end of the world than it is to plan for an ice storm. And that's kind of where I'm coming back and saying, you know, if the living isn't worth living in an ice storm, I don't know that the end of the world situation, you know, you're going to have the will to go on. And I'm going to say, if you don't do a real needs assessment of what your immediate family and really the extended family that you are concerned with and say, I've got a plan to survive a power outage. I've got a plan to survive the grocery store not being able to get me food for a week or 10 days. You know, those things are where it's almost, it's like malfeasance. And, you know, I say to people, hey, if you're taking medication every day, if you've got a little green pill bottle in front of you that you open up every morning when you get out of bed and you take your ration of pills or before you go to bed, you know, if you let that thing go all the way down and don't have at least a week or 10 days before you go get your prescription filled, that's foolishness. Because guess what? When Walgreens doesn't have any more power, and, you know, they're burning stuff down, where are you going to go to get it? Because nobody else has your prescription. You can't go to that little pharmacy that's too high around the corner because they don't have your prescription. So those are just things where it's like we got to think a little bit ahead. You know, just put your horizon seven days out, and this, all these little threats that we've talked about, Daniel, all of a sudden become inconveniences rather than life and death catastrophes. Yeah, and you, that needs assessment that you said. That's exactly what you need to do. If you are listening to the show because you want to, you know, you're probably not listening because you want to get better at IDPA because I don't talk about that very often. I uh, never shot an IDPA match. You're listening to it because you want to hear folks like John Hottaway, Masada, you, Pincus, and John and I talk about self-defense because you're preparing yourself. Uh, you're planning ahead for something that could possibly happen. The chances of it happening are reality is very slim. You know, the chances of the civil unrest or, or ice storms, like you said, or, or, you know, a hurricane or in my situation, a typhoon is much more likely than me having to shoot somebody tomorrow. We should actually, based on just that alone, we should do a much more detailed needs assessment than just checking our magazine, doing a press check before we walk out the door. We should be doing that with the, all of our you know living conditions like you just talked about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, and you know, Daniel, I've got a little... Um you know, a little something here I was going to kick out to you. Uh, you know, hopefully it'll be awkward and embarrassing for you, I'm hoping, you know, but I doubt it. Um, 
you know, one of the things that I always find really interesting, and and I want to go into it a little bit. You know, Paul Howe has a, a blog post out on Wilson Combat, and maybe you can post the link to it. Uh, what he really says is, is, you know, he talks about training and trainers and how to select them and some other stuff. But, uh, you know, one of the things I just wanted to say is, as a staff member uh, on MAG-40 when you went through, uh, do you mind if I just hijack your show and talk a little bit about you as a student and how you shot and stuff to, to your listeners? Sure, as long as you tell the truth. Uh, well, we're, what are we doing here then, if that's the problem? <laughs> no. um, you know, uh, we, we kind of talked, we wrapped out a little bit when we started, you know, was, hey, we didn't know. We- Can I preface this? As hey, I hadn't hardly even shot a pistol. I shot maybe 40, 50 rounds in the past two years before getting the Mag 40, and I had a brand new pistol I had never touched before. Yeah, I was going to say all that. Okay, sure. Okay, yeah, man, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, you know, we showed up to, to Mag 40. I think you'd been on a plane for like, what, 20, 20 hours, something like that by the time you got there? And then you were forced to, what, talk to Tommy for like another eight hours, which completely... Oh, well, the gun dudes were doing all their, their pre-Mag 40 prep, and we were up all night and all day running around everywhere. Yeah. And, and you know, being around Tommy basically does bring your IQ down. Agreed? Yes. But it, it, it brings your, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, comedic value a little bit higher, I think? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You begin to see life as a caricature of itself rather than something worth living. Um but that was actually a compliment. I, you know, I like most. Yep. Of the, I like the gun dudes. Um, oh yeah. What? But what, what I was getting at was, you know, we showed up there. Um, you know, first thing we did is cram you guys in a classroom with about ten too many people in it, and you know, start stuffing your brains full of stuff. And then we say, hey, grab your gear, let's go to the range. We're going to shoot. And you know, in all fairness, um, as I, I think, you know, any kind of personality. Uh, you've got a lot of people looking and saying, hey, you know, how did Shaw shoot down there? You know, how did the Marine do? How did the gun dudes do? How did this guy do? And, um, you know, so so you had a little more pressure on you, I think, than the average student. What I was going to say was there's a couple of things. Um, you know, you showed up with a brand-new rig, a brand-new gun that was built for you. Uh, i got to say that I tried the trigger on that Beretta and didn't find it, extraordinarily great or extraordinarily crappy I, you know i found it to be a decent trigger but um you shot most of the class in gloves you shot you know with a with a rig that was new to you i didn't see anything gamey or anything it was all pretty pretty tactically sound and i thought hey you know you stayed in the fight you ran your gun you did the drills you performed well um you know hey, you were credit to the core man you you did you did fine and what i guess i'm getting at is is I think a lot of people got to bring their A game, uh, you know, got time to prep, time to shoot, time to practice, showed up, uh, had all their gear, you know, kind of home court advantage. Uh, you were kind of thrown into the giant shit storm and said, hey, uh, let's pull something out of here, see what you got. So, you know, Daniel, I was kind of impressed from that standpoint that I felt like you delivered an above average performance based on the things that you had to work with. And I think you had an extra ration of shit thrown at you, uh, you know, from staff and the other podcasters in the class. And, you know, Mass certainly, what was it he did to you? Did he sexually assault you? Is that what he did to you in class? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you still... Well, you're making it sound like people were, like, busting on me or picking on me or something. I tried to. Yeah, I know you tried to. I thought we were telling the truth here. We did. You were busted on, man. You got it a little bit. I had to ask the gun dudes and you guys to start busting on me because everybody was making fun of each other, but they were just always, like, nice to me. I was like, 
dude, you guys can, can crack on me if you like. I mean, like, you can include me if you want to. And we did, didn't we? Very little. Oh, now now we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Yeah. I just wanted to be treated like a regular person. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you know, you were kind of the celebrity there. You know, you were from Japan, and you were the military guy. You know, I mean, you were all, you were all special. So, and... But no, I I felt like your performance was good. Your shooting was good. Um, you know your 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 classroom stuff was squared away and good. You know, I mean, hey. So what I'm saying to you is, is my classroom stuff. I just had to sit there. Ah, uh, you answered questions. You asked questions. You know, I mean, you did good on the test. I did. Pass, I did help coach a couple of people every once in a while. Yep. You know, that's what really it. Uh, it was it was refreshing because I would just talk whenever somebody wasn't talking or people were around and. It was like everybody would gather around and listen, and it's just—it's so refreshing teaching people who paid eight hundred dollars to go learn, and they want to learn, rather than some groups I get. Uh, somebody's like, "Well, Gunny made me come out here. I don't want to do this. I was supposed to go doing this, and I drank too much beer and had too much pizza and Monster this morning for breakfast." So, uh, it's it's awesome, you know, teaching people who want to learn and just you know, people just kind of want to just hang on to it. Well, you know. Daniel, I guess where I'm going with this is, and I'm kind of you know bringing this around to the to the Paul Howell article, and and here goes, you know, there are a lot of instructors out here. There's a lot of people that are doing podcasts, and you know I'm always interested in something, and that is, do we have the real deal? You know, do we have people who are the genuine article, or do we have people who either you know they talk it or they imagine it, or, you know, their, their stuff isn't really squared away. And so I'm always looking at that when I see another instructor. And, you know, I, I go to quite a few deals where I get to meet the instructors as peers rather than as a student. And, you know, we'll go to, uh, like, Tom Gibbons has the tactical conference. And uh, this year, I think it's in uh, March. And, you know, I've got a segment I'm presenting there. And there's other presenters that are going to be there, you know, and you name it. Uh, start naming instructors you know the who's who's of them are all there and so you get to meet them as peers and you get to compete with them in a match and you get to see how they shoot and how they handle themselves as a competitor and then you get to see them as an instructor and you get to ask them instructor development questions and so you look at them and you go some of them you have to sort out and go yeah i'm not super impressed here you know but okay and then there's other ones where you go you know their stuff's squared away and i think that uh you know as a uh, as a peer, you look at them and you go, hey, I like that. And I want to be that. And that's who I want to emulate. And they've got stuff I want to learn from. So, you know, that's that's part of what I'm always looking for. And and I think Paul kind of says something like that too, which was, you know, you, you go to an instructor and he said, I, I think if I'm going to quote him wrong here, he said, I learned about 10% from a lot of the instructors that he goes to. He says, because he wants to make sure that the tools in his toolkit are few but work really well regardless of the conditions that he's in. And he talks about, you know, the difference between technical skills and, you know, the the combat skills. And one of the other things which I thought was just incredible, and I'd actually like to have you comment on this if you don't mind, Daniel, because I've been kind of kind of waiting to bait someone into this conversation. So he says this. He says, shooting is a technical skill. But competition will help you with your stress, but combat helps you with your fear. 
What do you think about that? Whether you're shooting a Mag 40 and it's, you know, time to qualify or, you know, pass your qualification or you're shooting an IDPA match, you're always going to have a little bit of stress. You're always going to have a little bit of fear of, you know, maybe what's this next course going to be, a little fear of the unknown. But uh, I think what Paul was talking about, you know, he's kind of focusing more on fear of loss of life, but also the fear of the most important thing is uh, he says combat. And, you know, that's I'd probably have to have this conversation with Paul. <laughs> but uh, to really get down to what he's talking about, uh, I don't know if you listened to uh, a couple of shows ago when John and I talked about uh, it was called the the killing toll. Okay. About uh, the effects of you know using deadly force and, and actually killing someone. There's also the fear of having to shoot someone, the fear of having to kill another human, uh, the fear of letting your your friends down, your your buddies that are with you. You can't get that anywhere else. You know, the IDPA, uh, IPSC, that's an individual thing. Uh, yeah, you might shoot on a team. But it's still you're an individual out there doing it. You're not letting the whole program down. You're not letting everyone down. Uh, you're not going to cause someone to lose life if uh, if you fell and you shoot, have a bad match or have a bad string of fire. It's not that dire. It does change everything. And like I, I agreed with Mass whenever he was on here and he was talking about that you can't be in every situation and teach every single situation because you've been in every single situation uh, and you've been in every type of gunfight there is possible. By the time that happens, your luck's going to run out and you're going to die. But at the same time, I think there are things that you're going to take away. And those instructors that Paul was talking about, uh, I know there's things that I, that I feel that I'm qualified to talk about because of you know the encounters that I've been in and the use of force that I've had that I think a lot of people can't talk about. So I get to bring a little bit extra to the, to the whole table. I can't completely describe it. Uh, I can't paint the picture. You can't see the picture uh, until you've actually experienced it, I guess is the best way to say it. I know whenever I do have a group of, of Marines or anybody else around and the feedback I've gotten from that show, people's ears perk up and they're drawn to that. And that's something that they're really curious about, how they're going to react, how they're going to react before, during, and after. And uh, I don't know if that's exactly what he's talking about there. Well, you know, I think what what he was really talking about was is that there are technical things that you can teach because you're good at it. You know, because you have that skill set and you can teach that to other people. But I think that what I read from this was is that um, you need to have experienced some things to teach other people to move through those and to be able to be prepared for those things. And I think he was mostly talking about combat more than he was talking about um a civilian encounter the use of deadly force i think he was talking about what you you really talked about was that team environment that you don't want to let your team down i think so too because he was talking about different gear and uh you know wearing gloves and you know wearing your body armor and everything else a technique that's going to work for all of that and yeah that, that's incredibly important and you know my genre of what i'm teaching here to marines it's totally different than teaching someone how to you know draw from inside the waistband and give a non-standard response at a gas station. Uh, we're talking about, like he, and I completely agree with what he was talking about there, having one technique uh, that, that works great. And uh, some people will say, here's the best way that I've found to do it, and this is what we should do. And this is what I'm going to teach. I find that females that are going into combat, and people don't know that, that happens all the time, they can't shoot in the same shooting position that I can with we're wearing body armor. We have to tweak things a little bit. I have to put magazine pouches in different locations on their gear. 
Uh, we all have different body. What works perfectly for me may not work as well for this 5'1", uh, stubby arm girl getting ready to, to go to Afghanistan. So we have to tweak things. But everything is fundamental. I truly believe that there are no just, I'm an advanced shooter or I'm an advanced gunfighter. You have a, their base of fundamentals, your baseline of your understanding and your ability to apply the fundamentals of, uh, I guess I'll say, combat marksmanship. But they, even they, but it's not just marksmanship when you're talking about combat. There's just so many other things that come into involved that are just shooting is a very small percentage. Well, Daniel, let me let me just go to something right here because I think that you're dovetailing into the next thing that he brought up that was just really revealing. And I I talked to a friend of mine uh, yesterday who came out to the range with me, and he is a uh, um, I'm going to use this word on your show. Um, he he was in the army, and um, he did a couple of tours of Iraq in the army, and then he did a couple of them with some private security gigs. And I asked him this question. I want to ask you this question as well from Paul Howe's deal. And what he said was this, and this is something I found incredibly interesting. Paul said, you know, when you're getting someone who's teaching the technical skill of shooting and you look at, say, an Ipsic shooter, um, what he said is, is, look, the Ipsic shooter decides if it's brown, it gets two. If it's white, it gets none. And then they move as fast as they can to the next one. He said, but what I've got is working in a team environment and working in a hostile environment. I have to constantly first discriminate against targets that are not cardboard and white, but that are wearing clothes. And I have to look at the hands and decide, are they going to kill me? Are they hostile? Are they friendly? Are they a member of my team? And then I have to make a shooting solution or not. And, you know, he, he elaborated that that target discrimination and being better at that than I think what he was saying is I have to be better at discriminating against the target than I am at shooting that target to avoid fratricide, to avoid murder, to avoid all these other things because he's in a um, human-rich environment where on the square range, you're not. And 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 so I'm kind of interested in your take on that. The shooting is such a small percentage, and really it is the easy part. It really is. It's dealing with everything else that is the complicated you know, the, the sights, the sounds, like you said, the, and like Paul said, discriminating targets. Wh- which targets can I shoot? Is he shootable? Is she? Am I justified in doing this? Does that person just need to die because they're about to kill me or one of my friends? You know, it's it's so much more complicated than just pulling the trigger. Like I said, you know, we're talking about optics. You put the red stuff on the bad stuff, especially if we're talking about close range. That's It's really not that hard. It, it really isn't when you think about it. You got that basis of fundamentals and how you can apply them. Put red stuff on bad stuff, pull the trigger, you've taken care of that. But where do you put the red stuff? You know, who is the bad stuff? How do you know? It's just, it's so much more complicated than, it's not like in the movies where there's, you know, a few bad guys over here and a good guys are over here and we're going to shoot at them, they're going to shoot at us. No, they're, they're putting on, they're wearing, they're dressed in civilian clothes. They're, they're dropping rifles when they go into buildings and coming out and walking somewhere else and picking up another rifle and shooting somewhere else. And, you know, technically under, you know, most rules of engagement, you can't shoot somebody right there. It's just, it, it's so much more complicated. And they, when my biggest fight that I was in was in the Battle of Nazaria in 2003. And we saw that all day long. You know, we, we saw them dressed like they were women. We saw every single thing. And it's just, it's so much more complicated than, hey, there's a bad guy dressed in a bad guy uniform carrying one of those bad guy guns. Oh, obviously we have to shoot him. We all wish it was that simple. You know, the second part 
Um, and I, you know, Daniel, I kind of go back to this. Um, you know, I've got, I do a little PSD work and I'm certainly in a permissive environment. And, you know, I've heard people go, okay, well, you know, it's PSD in a hostile environment or semi-permissive. You know, they, they have all these variations on it. And, you know, I, I thought about that in relationship to kind of what you just said. And I thought, you know, my thing is this, um, you know, I look around and you got this guy and really probably what you're trying to do is protect him from getting embarrassed. You're not really, uh, probably going to protect him from a really, really determined attacker. You know, they want to harass him. They want to embarrass him. They want to smack him upside the head, but they're not serious ambush. But then I thought about it and I thought, you know, okay, so if you take that and you go, that's permissive, and then you go hostile, the thing is, is that you've got the exact same discrimination, but the stakes are so much higher because you know that they want to kill you and kill all your friends, but it's the same degree of difficulty in target discrimination as a permissive environment, but the stakes are so much higher. And I thought, man, I get so spun up in a permissive environment just trying to keep someone from getting embarrassed. Imagine if it was an embarrassment. They wanted to kill him and everyone else around me and didn't mind taking out the room full of people. You know, that would take a horrible toll emotionally just simply staying spun up like that. I I guess you would classify one time I was doing a PSD. We were assigned a small city in Iraq after the initial, you know, invasion and all that to help them set up their local government and when our commanders would go to have basically town meetings with uh, the elders, my squad was outside and we were providing security for the meeting. And it's all about problem solving. You know, there's just, you can't shoot everybody that causes a problem. You know, we, we have limits, we have rules, rules of engagement. Uh, I mean, there was a kid with a slingshot. Can I shoot a kid with a slingshot when I'm wearing full body armor and a helmet and everything? Is this guy using deadly force on me? Do I want him to keep shooting? Can I go snatch this kid and, and smack him in the face? Or is that going to you know piss off everybody else in the crowd? And now we've got a bunch of people, and now next thing you know, we're like in a hand-to-hand uh, butt-stroking folks. You know, it's just, there's so many more, it's, it's just dynamic. You know, you I think it's the ability to problem solve. That's why I teach people like in a mount environment. When I'm te- talking about urban stuff or, you know, I don't like close quarters battle. I always tell people if you need a gold piece of gear, uh, and you're in a, a urban environment fighting, you know, full level three mount warfare. Uh, look for a dead CQB marine because he'll have some cool gear on him because he's not going to survive there. But the uh, it's a different story altogether. But and when you're in that urban environment, there's just so many different avenues where people can attack you. There is no most likely avenue of approach. Everywhere is a most likely avenue of approach. So you have to maintain three hundred maintain three hundred sixty degrees spherical uh, security all the time. If if your body's exposed somewhere, you need to have a gun pointed there. You know, weapons and eyes at least, or eyes at the very least, uh, preferably a weapon if it's possible. You've got all these problems that can that can occur, everything that can happen. You can't game everything. You can't solve every problem in training. What you have to do with the student uh, or with you know the Marines that I'm teaching or you know people in gunfighter. If I can do anything, I want to inspire tactical thinking. Tact think think to where. You, you game things as much as you can in your head. You, you do it in training. You do it on the range. Uh, you do it in your house. You do it for your pre-plan for a hurricane, for a home invasion. You, you do the, the best you can, and you have like an 80 or 90% plan. You know that some of that plan is not going to work out when after contact happens. But you've at least worked it enough to where you've begun to think tactically. So whenever you've got something that's just out of the ordinary, you may not be like Jeff Cooper said, 
I thought this might happen and I'm ready to do it. But you're going to at least be able to say, all right, something's happening and I know a good decision process that I can solve this problem. And then you, you've kind of arrived, you know, or then you keep honing that. You know, back to the Paul Howe article a minute, and I want to bounce this off of you because I've thought about this a lot, and this is not something Paul wrote. This is something I've been formulating for a while. Um, you know, after you had had um, three and a half days of instruction, after you had heard me come by and make little comments about your shooting and make some suggestions and critique, you know, and I mean, I think I did get around to you talking to you a little bit about your shooting. You know, at the end of that, all of a sudden, it came time for staff to stand in front of you and deliver. And, you know, we stood in front of you and we, you know, we, we, we fired the same course of fire we were going to ask you to fire. We tried to model it. And you got to look at the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever that was. And then we ask you to stand up and deliver the same thing. Now, as an instructor, there's a lot of things that go on here. But the first one is, is this. There's sort of a debate that says, as an instructor, should I be able to teach you or should I be just a good demonstrator to you? And I kind of submit that to be a great instructor, and, and I use the word great, loosely because I think there are legendary instructors and then I think there's you know varying degrees of them after that I think it's incumbent upon me as as an instructor to first of all be able to teach you to do a particular skill be it a technical skill or be it learning and then I think the second thing is is that I be able to model that same behavior for you in front of you on demand perform that task And then third is to be able to judge you to be able to perform or not perform that task. Now, those lead to some significant debates in training, and there are three divergences. One is, I just have to be able to teach you. Screw it if I can demonstrate it or not. The second one is, well, I can shoot like a house of fire, but I can barely put two words together to talk about it. And then the third one is, and which kind of, I don't know, runs the gamut of, well, we can't embarrass our students. We can't ask them to perform on-demand something in front of everyone else. And then that trails down two roads. One of them is, let's use a timer or let's set a time for this to be demonstrated. Or, well, I've never seen a clock in a gunfight. To which Tom Gibbons says, yes, there is. The only thing is, is the Grim Reaper's holding it and you've got the rest of your life to figure it out. What's your thoughts on this? I mean, I've thrown some big questions out here. But I think these are real questions that Paul raises, sort of not directly, but kind of indirectly about what to look for in a trainer. Look, you think you could ask like three or four more before I have to answer? Do you want me to break it down to one one syllable word, Shaw? Let's see. I heard shot timer in there somewhere. Uh, You know, I've kind of, the shot timer thing... I could, I got, I've kind of go both ways on this back and forth. You know, I, I like to have a shot timer. I like ways. to. It's not. I said on this. I was oh. specifically talking about a a specific uh, situation. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Not that I go both ways in whatever is in your mind. Dude, you said it. You said it. I'm not the one saying it. You said it. Okay. Let's go. You're the one thinking about dudes, man. <laughs> It was pretty obvious. You and Tom- I think all the listeners are going to agree. I mean, I think you and Tommy were sharing the hotel room, like what we all like puppy style in that, you know, twin bed. I think I slept with Stan. Oh, he's a snuggler, isn't he? <laughs> he's so soft. <laughs> now, you know, the shot timer thing is interesting. Uh, I saw a uh, 
I'm a member of the uh, group of ICE training yeah. uh, with Rob Pincus on uh, Facebook, and they get in some lively discussions on that thing. And a couple of things you were just talking hey, wait about. A broad- you know what I called Rob on his own group? And, and I'm, I, I mean this with all respect. I said, Rob, I said, you're a spoon. And he goes, I don't get it, John. And I said, you know, you're always stirring the pot, dude. Yeah, that's what I like about Rob, though. But uh, that there's some they got some pretty serious debates going on, and uh, between Rob and uh, Brennan LaBeouf yeah. comes in there and like, know, hey, dude, I've trained with Brennan before. I, I talked to Brennan a lot. I've never met him, but uh, it, he, he seems like a really good dad, uh, he, really good guy. We were in Tom Givens' advanced instructor course together, and he, we were right beside each other. And you know, he's about. I mean, I think he's a full four foot tall. Um, but, uh, anyway, the dude can run a gun, you know, he really can. He's, uh, he's a good practitioner. He takes his shit serious and uh, a lot of respect for him. I really do. I have a lot of respect for the guy and, uh, I, I find him to be the real deal too. Yeah. I think he was, uh, I think he may have been the one who brought it up about the shot timer thing, uh, when they were going back and forth on that. And, you know, everybody brought up good points about the shot timer and not using a shot timer. The I think time we we need to have a standard that we go for. I mean, if you go out to the range and you're just plinking, who cares how fast you shoot if that's what you're doing for fun? But if you have a firearm for you know defensive purpose, you know for protection or whatever you may use it for, or offense if you're in the military or law enforcement or you know what have you, uh, I think you need to to have a standard. Like I like to run. Uh, I just started running again, and I've been running a lot. Ran a half marathon last week. Uh, ran a five k the Friday before the Saturday that I ran a half marathon. And okay, hey, time out for a second. I gotta, I gotta ask a question, dude. You know, we're friends on Facebook, and was this the one with the zombies in it that I saw? Like your your lovely wife with a zombie and and all the is, yeah the the five k was the five k was a zombie. Uh, okay, cool. The one right after that, uh, the. No, 5K was on Friday or Saturday, and then the half marathon was on Sunday. The the 5K was the zombie one. Uh, there's people that show up for zombie 5Ks that look like you, John. But the people that show up for the uh, the half marathons, these guys are all like super slick, super gear, and like wearing nylon and spandex and ready to run. It's like totally different body types and everything. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, but uh, and uh, but anyway, I like I like to run and. The, what really and I, I re, when I was younger I'd run a lot and then I took about probably six seven years off and just didn't like to run but since this Nike Plus thing I use that to the GPS on my phone and I can tell how far I run my time per mile how how long I ran how long it took me to run that and I'm always trying to beat my times and just since I keep track of those times and I'm trying to beat those times then I'm out there working harder like I feel bad if I don't go run for a day or two like I didn't run today or yesterday and so I I really want to go run tomorrow. And because I, I want to keep improving and keep beating those times so that I am faster and I can, I can run better, uh, just get stronger, healthier. And I think the same thing could be applied to, you know, your, your firearms training. You, you're keeping track of these times or, you know, used to, I had a really hard time shooting such and such drill that incorporated movement laterally and, and backward and forward, uh, doing this little course. And I see that my accuracy is, is getting better and my speed is getting better. And I think it helps motivate us as well. You know, Daniel, I, I want to just throw this out, and I want to see if this bounces or resonates with you at all. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, kind of fishing on this, but let me see if this overlaps. One of the benefits that I have found about competing, and I would primarily say IDPA, but I shoot IDPA, IPSC, ICOR, Ruger Rimfire. I mean, 
you know, you put a you put a match that involves shooting together, and I'm in. You know, I mean, I'm I'm all about it. I enjoy it. But here here was the deal. You know, and I described this on Bob Main's um, podcast. I think it was his. But you know, I got into a situation where I was in Seattle, and I honestly was thinking I was going to have to shoot these three thugs in a third level basement parking garage. And what I knew was at the moment that I realized this was a horrible situation, and I want to first of all say, I got into that situation because I was not using situational awareness correctly. Okay, you know, by the time I got something that I felt like I needed to go to the gun for, I realized that I had failed on being aware. You know, so I get into the situation, and what I did was I looked at it and I said, three targets, here's my gun. I know how fast I can put two accurate hits on that target, on that target, on that target. And I knew that I had a plan that I could survive, and I had the will to fight. And I think at that moment, those three little thugs realized that this old man was going to kill them, and that I had the will to do it, I had the means to do it. And, you know, there was this, like, unspoken deal. Well, you know, okay, and you said it earlier, I'm an individual. But, you know, I think that as a unit in combat, you know, if you've trained together and you know what your skill sets are together, you know how fast these people move and what their skill sets are, then you can formulate a plan. And you can formulate that plan on reasonable goals and expectations that you can execute without getting people killed. Well, I think it, for a person who's using a gun for personal defense, having that shot timer, having a little competition allows you to formulate, you know, throw together a plan instantly or relatively instantly, that will allow you to get out of that situation knowing what you have to perform to do that. And that's where I think the shot timer and some competition and solving some problems with a gun comes in. Not that I think we're going to be assaulted by cardboard targets that go beep at us. You know, that that's what I was getting at. And that's where I think it's applicable to real world. No, I think it's a valid point. I think I don't think you have to have a shot timer on everything you do. Uh, no. I don't. I don't think you think that either. No, I don't uh, at all. I think someone with a reasonable amount of integrity will be trying to push his limits. You know, well, trying to go as fast as he can accurately. But you know what? Here's the thing. Look, dude. If we go to the gym, and I do actually go to the gym because I keep this rocking body I've got. You know, here here it is. But when we go to the gym, you know, that's not the race. That's the training. And I think in training, you're exactly what you said. You're developing a skill. You're putting that skill to test but there is that moment where you're going to run the marathon or the 5k and everybody's going to be timed you know and that's that's where i guess i'm advocating you have to make sure that your training has purpose otherwise you're just i call it mental masturbation you know if you don't have a plan that's all you're doing yep you're plinking that's right now last question do you think an instructor has to be able to demonstrate the techniques that he's teaching? Yeah, this is one other thing that I was talking about with the IC uh, Facebook page. That was no, this wasn't on the IC. This was on another one. But Brandon was going off on somebody, and they were we were going back and forth, and I was just watching. But then I had to key in on one part because Brandon said something I thought was just hilarious, and it was just incredibly true. There was somebody who was citing how they were somehow cited as a source on some crappy book or something. I don't know. It wasn't anything impressive. But he was suddenly trying to – this guy was trying to portray himself as just the end-all, be-all expert on firearms because he was cited in some book that nobody had ever heard of. Brandon said something about he was writing a book called uh, – just joking around. 
Well, let me see if I remember it right. I don't want to misquote him. Dudes teaching other dudes how to do things that they've never done. Huh. Yeah. I don't, I don't think he said things, but I'll try to keep my show clean. Okay. But the, uh, it, it was hilarious. So I had to post on that. I was like, Brandon, what do I have to do to get cited in this book? And, uh, you know, he comes back with something joking like, well, you can't because you're not supposed to have any experience or anything or something like that. How true is that, man? Like how many people are out there teaching dudes or dudes teaching dudes things that they've never done? You know, it, it's all the time. Well, and I, I'm not saying that you have to have shot somebody or you have to have drawn your weapon in that parking garage and dropped three guys to teach someone how to shoot at El Presidente. You know, what I'm saying is. Uh, people are approaching things and calling themselves, oh, I'm a gunfighter or I'm this and that. Doesn't that mean like one who gunfights or, or something like that? You know, Daniel, that's why I try to I try to work it in jokingly, but it's like, okay, you know what? I don't own a thigh rig. I don't have a set of Ray-Bans. I'm not going to the desert anytime soon. So let's get that out of the way right now. You know, I'm not trying to pretend to be something I'm not so that what I am going to say that I'm relevant on should have credibility because I don't think everybody can be relevant on everything. I guess what I'm getting at though is, and you know, I'm sort of honing in on it is I think an instructor who is going to teach a technical set of skills. I'm not talking about a lecture now. I'm not talking about a theoretical talk on anything, but I'm saying, you know, Daniel, if you were going to come and you were going to teach me how to run that ACOG that we were talking about, It'd be reasonable for me to say, hey, Daniel, why don't you do it once for me and show me how that's done? Absolutely. And I'm saying I've seen instructors that won't pull their gun out of the holster the whole class. And when asked, they will say, well, you know, I shoot at a level that it's not reasonable to expect my students to do, so I don't want to disappoint them. You've not heard that. Shit you not. Are you serious? Shit you not, dude. I'm sorry. It's a clean show. I Democrat you not. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, I have, I have heard those words come out of an instructor's mouth when said, will you model this, demonstrate this for the class? No, I, I, if, if I can't do it, like you said, on call, cold, hand me, you know, up some duct tape, let me make a holster real quick and, just a random gun from the line. I don't believe in grip angles. I don't believe in anything. I believe in sight alignment on a target, hits the target. There's not going to be any excuses. If I'm going to teach something, I can perform it with any firearm. Well, I'll give you, for instance, one of the drills, you know, we had some, like I said, we had carbine Sunday out at my place. One of the things we did was, is, you know, we shot this little drill and I said, oh, by the way, uh, you don't get to use your own rifle, your own optic. It's pickup time. And so we all stripped off our gear, and you have to pick up somebody else's gun and go to work with it. Well, you know, that says that I have a skill rather than I've mastered a gun. And right. that's that's where I'm at. You know, if I can't pick up your gun, you know, if I couldn't take your Beretta 92 that you were shooting and demonstrate what I wanted, my technique, my my kung fu's weak, man. Yep. And that's, and that's the way I see it. I'm sorry, you know... I, but there are instructors who I think talk a better game than they can actually demonstrate themselves. And I, you know, ask the question, is that valid? I don't think it is, but I think there are schools of thought that says it is valid. And I'm like, well, dude, I just read a book or listen to a podcast if that's what I want. Right. (laughs) But 
I think the same thing. You know, I, I picked up a, uh, a Smith & Wesson Airweight, the 442, when I was in Northern Virginia at a, at a foreign weapons instructor course and because I was in Northern Virginia and I needed a gun to carry. There happened to be a USPSA match uh, one weekend when I was there. And uh, I had just got this two days before this match, and I'm in my room with speed clips and speed loaders just practicing reloading this thing. I'm watching Masada U videos. I'm watching Pincus videos. I'm watching everybody's videos on how to reload a revolver, trying to figure out the best way. And I came up with the Daniel Shaw way of, of reloading it. There was a combination of multiple methods. Is it something I should teach to everybody? I don't know yet. But it worked for me. And the first time I was out there shooting USPSA, I know how guns work. I know how revolvers work. I have the probably the smallest amount of experience of anybody you'd know with a revolver. Just they have never really messed with them. And other than just shooting and dropping rounds in the uh, cylinder and then closing it and shooting it again, you know, having to actually run that gun was so different for me. Am I like right now, if someone say, Hey, can you come help me teach a revolver class? No, but I'd like to go to that class. That's what I'm going to say right now. I not at the level. I can't, I can't do that on call. I cannot perform any of these actions. I could go slow motion and talk to you about the uh, preload and all this other stuff, but whenever that buzzer goes and I'm trying to do it real fast, it's not going to work out like that. I, I can't do it. I, I don't have that skill set yet, and it's not transferable to other revolvers. You know, I know what works for my little 442 halfway, but uh, yeah, I'm with you. I- well, you know, dude, I, on that subject, I'm going to say. We all have to be honest with ourselves, honest with our students. You know, I teach people all the time, and I try to make sure that I'm teaching them relevant to what I have skills to teach, what they're asking me to teach. Now, I was at the LFI 25th anniversary in Florida. There was a gentleman next to me that shot the entire class with a J-frame revolver out of his right front pants pocket in a inside-the-pants holster, and shot it with speed strips out of the other uh, pocket. Now, I'm over there with uh, Ernie Langdon tuned Sig Sauer P226 ST, you know, super slick sights on the gun, banging away, you know, high cap mags. And this guy ran this revolver as good as anyone I've ever seen run a J frame. But guess what? That's all he shot in competition. That's all he carried. He was great with it. Now, I couldn't hold a candle to him, but I do know how to manipulate a revolver. I know how to load one. I know how to load one with speed strips. I can teach one. That is not my strong point. And I will, if there's a better revolver shooter in class, we'll definitely try to get that instructor over there to that person with the revolver. But, you know, hey, I'm pretty handy with a 1911 and I can teach that. I'm pretty handy with most double action pistols. I am not super handy with a Glock just because I have a big old fat hand and it the slide chews me up. Can I run one? You betcha. You know, is it painful? You betcha. But that's why it's a preference, not a requirement. You know, and I, I think that instructors being human is part of us being successful, you know, is being honest with everybody because, dude, how often do you not smell it when someone starts slinging something they don't own? You know, they're just kind of making it up as they go. That's why you know, people ask all the time. I've answered the question a few times on Gunfighter Cast, what's a good instructor? And I, I've said integrity, like we've just been t- discussing, and humility. You know, I have to realize that every single thing, I've changed my mind about so many things in the past three or four years. If I had ever gotten to the mindset to where I see a few instructors out there to where you just can't tell them anything. They just... Like, 
they got it, you know, and then they're not even looking at the stuff coming back from Afghanistan or uh, shootouts or anything that goes on. They're not looking at videos. They're not, they're not seeing the stuff that we're seeing from dash cams and everything else. And they're just staying with the same thing and they will not make any changes because that's what they've always taught. I think you're going to be failing your students eventually because things are changing. I mean, you, there, there's always a little something here and there. And if you're just so set in your ways that you just can't say, Oh, well, I can do this. Like you just talked about how if there's a revolver shooting in the class, you'll have them come up and teach you. That's because you're humble enough to do that. And you will realize that, hey, this guy, he's better at this. He's you know going to be a better teacher at this right here to show his method. Or maybe he demonstrates it better and you talk him through it. Well, Shaw, let me let – me, I'm just going to put you on the spot here for a minute, okay? You can – I mean, dude, you can edit this out if you want to, but but here's, uh, here's the deal. You know – uh, I'm going to shamelessly plug. I have Nighthawk Custom Training Academy in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, you can find it on the internet at nighthawkcustomtraining.com. I'm hoping you'll put a link up for me. But uh, but you know you're you're getting out of the core pretty soon, aren't you? I am. So you know I think it would be appropriate. I'm going to extend the invitation right now. I'm going to extend the invitation. But would you come and teach a class for me um, at my place? As long as it's not on revolvers, I'd be happy to. Now, you know what I was really thinking is, is uh, you know, I, I would like to have, uh, you know, some real, uh, so, somebody who knows how to run a carbine and, uh, you know, teaches some, uh, you know, some carbine skills. And I think that uh, you're probably a lot more qualified at that than I am. And, and uh, I think there's a lot of people that would love the opportunity to, uh, to find out what you've been teaching to those young Marines. We could certainly do that. So I've got a commitment here. Is that correct? Yeah, you got me on the spot. Okay. I am committed. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do, Daniel, is this. I know you've got to get out of the core, and uh, you and I will probably need to uh, you know, message back and forth and set up some dates and get the things together. But, uh, you know, let's, 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 we're committed now. We're going to hold the class. We'll hold it at my place and uh, details to come out, but, uh, you know, in size and stuff. But I'm, I'm counting on it because I think you've got some stuff I want to learn. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Well, dude. Hopefully we fill it up real quick because all the yep. listeners want to come. Pardon me? All you guys for the past like three years who have been emailing me saying, hey, when you do a class, how come? Make sure you come to this one. And you know what? It's going to be limited in size. We'll have uh, registration first come, first serve. But I think this will be a sellout class. So as soon as you see it posted, you better jump on it with a deposit. Yeah, hopefully uh, if it's enough time in advance. I'll get John down there too if he can get away from work as long as the president's not coming to town or anything. You know, hopefully we'll have a change in administration by then. Hopefully. Yes, we will. Well, dude, it's been so good. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, you're welcome, John. Thanks for coming on and running Gunfighter Cast for me. Oh, man. It was uh, less work than usual. Hey, it's living the dream for me, man. You know, I've only got about, what, 15 more podcasts. You know, hey, here's the question, dude. You know, you know Ken, uh, you know, man, I, I've never, you know, he's got a show. I need to be on it, you know? <laughs> you want me to put in a good word, dude? Put in a good word. Now listen, I can't sing or anything, you know. And I, and I yeah, I think that's why I haven't been on there because I don't yeah, sing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I can sing, but nobody enjoys it. That's what I'm trying to say. So yeah, I'll, I'll put in a word for you. Yeah, you know, he's got a show. I, you know, my goal is to try to be on as many podcasts as possible. You know, not because I'm good or people enjoy me, but just because it's my own narcissistic fantasy. You just want you you collect Google points. Absolutely, dude. That's it. All right. Well, that's pretty much it. Uh, you finally heard John. I've been putting them off for a long time and teasing them, and uh, he came on and ran the show, and probably be on again sometime in uh, a year or so from now. 
<laughs> no, I'm sure. I'll be back in the States, and uh, my time has changed. It's not going to be as short as it was, because uh, as you have heard that I'm getting out of the Marine Corps, I know last you heard I just re-enlisted, uh, but they did this early retirement thing and offered it up, and I jumped on it. And if you were over 15 years in a certain job, that uh, due to cutbacks, they were trying to decrease the amount of people, you could volunteer for early retirement, and uh, I took it and got approved. So I will be retiring here soon and you know, trying to find a job teaching somewhere, doing something gun-related. And thanks, John, for uh, giving me the opportunity to start it all off over there at Nighthawk Custom. That's cool. That was like, didn't know it was coming. It was a complete surprise in the show. So that wasn't uh, scripted. John just, he likes to throw punches. Thanks for uh, coming on Gunfighter Cast. And uh, we'll see you next time, John. You want to you say be safe or Gunfighter Cast out for us? No, I want to say Nighthawk Custom out. All right. All right. Until next time, Gunfighter Cast out. Gunfighter Cast is brought to you by Aries Gear. Get the last belt you'll ever own at ariesgear.com.